going to actually speak into the mic this time. Um, yeah, last time I had some severe problems not speaking into the mic. Uh, in my arrogance, I was like, I'll just project my voice. And uh, that did not turn out so hot. So I'm thankful to be back in this church. Um, I'm so thankful for this church's influence on my life. Um, just so you know, Austin and I, this church have been, has sent us out on multiple occasions going unto the nations. Austin to Malaysia. Uh, I to South Asia, um, Italy, uh, Mexico. Uh, now my sister, you guys will be sending her out to Honduras. So this church is having a global impact um, for the gospel. And not only that, but as we've seen with the NAM offering that you guys are, had just gave, also making a large impact on church plants here. So just from this small congregation, um, I praise God that we have seen such fruit come from you guys. Um, also, I'm thankful to be preaching this morning because I'm opening up a series that you guys will be going into over the next few weeks And so the series, we're really excited about it, is um, where you're going to be following different characters, different people around the cross story. And so the reason we're doing this is because we believe that from these different relationships, um, we will be able to see the cross from our own unique vantage point. So we have friends, we have family, we have students, enemies, criminals, skeptics, murderers, the rich, rulers, and more, all seeing the Son of God crucified, the single most, most important moment in human history. And like I said, from this and from seeing the cross from these different vantage points, we pray and we believe that we will see the cross from our own unique vantage point through them. So today we'll be looking at a group of people rather than one person. We'll be looking at the disciples. Um, And and the reason I'm doing this is because I believe there's a lot in the actions of the disciples. There's a lot from the story of the disciples around the cross that we can see about our own lives. And also, the disciples give us a large span of time for before the cross— during the crucifixion, and then immediately following the cross for us, to, um, for us to have this set up for the rest of the series. And congregation, as we go throughout the series, as Adam and Robbie finish out the series, there's nothing more important for you to hear. If you miss everything else, following all these different characters, there's nothing more important for you to know than what the central focus of the series is. And that is that God has come to the earth in the form of a man. He has taken the punishment for sins that we have committed against the Holy Creator, and, this, and he has come back to life. This is a message that sets apart Christianity. This is a message that has profound implications for our lives. Today we'll look at how it affected the disciples' lives, and we'll see how from that it affects our lives. So there's three things I want you to see. One, the hope of the disciples. Two, the despair of the disciples. And three, ultimately, the belief of the disciples. So first, the hope of the disciples. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to John 14. So this is the night before the crucifixion in John 14. Give you guys a little time to get there. So at this point in the life of the disciples, they had been following Jesus Christ for approximately three years. They were normal men. I'm not saying they were dumb, but there's nothing to suggest they had any sort of superior intellect. They were just working class, normal people. They had families. They were married. They had careers. And they had abandoned all of this to follow Jesus Christ. They were his friends. They had spent more time with him on earth than anyone else. They had seen him heal the blind, those with leprosy. They would seen him turn water to wine. They'd seen him perform all of these miracles, even raising multiple people from the dead. They had seen all of this happen. They knew him. They even knew he was the Christ. That's why we read in Luke 9, 20. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. They knew he was the Christ. They knew he was of God. 
He, they knew him better than anyone. And all of their following of Jesus had come to a culmination in these closing days. So in this passage, John 14, Jesus is talking to them on the night of his crucifixion. Jesus has just told them one of them will betray him. He has just told them of the unkindness he should receive from some of them. And he has just told them he will leave them through suffering. I mean, Christ is making it abundantly clear. I'm going to die. He's not leaving any sort of, um, any sort of ambiguity here. He says, I'm going to die. I mean, right after Peter identifies Jesus as the Christ, in Luke 9.20, we read, The Son of Man must suffer many things. This is Christ speaking. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So again, no gray area here. Christ says, I'm going to die. I'm going to come back to life. However, despite all these things, we see the disciples clearly misunderstanding. So looking here at John 14, 1 through 8, we see Thomas and Philip questioning Jesus' speech. And I'm going to read here from the first eight verses. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I would go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. That where I am, you may also be. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do not know him and have seen no, you do know him and have seen him. And in verse 8, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. So zoning back in here at verse 5, look back at verse 5. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Again, Philip still doesn't recognize who Christ is claiming to be. Just after he says, I'm the way, he says, Philip questions him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. You see the disciples we're operating under some serious misunderstandings about who Christ was and what he was going to do. The monumental misunderstanding the disciples were still under was the impression that Christ was going to usher into this world a type of secular glory and power. Although Christ had constantly refuted that he would be this great military or political leader of the Jews, the disciples still dreamed of a temporal kingdom of power and praise for the Messiah who had long been foretold to deliver them. Their minds cannot even comprehend the fact that this wise teacher, this miracle worker, um, this man that they had been following for all these years was going to be killed. They had seen his power. They knew he was of God. This is why Peter, in his ignorance, tries to rebuke Jesus when he says he is going to die. Look in Matthew 16, 22. It says, and Peter took him aside. Peter, a man, takes Jesus Christ aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen. Their hope was built on a foundation of something that was not true. This shows us two underlying beliefs and thoughts that the disciples had about Christ. And the first is that they thought everything would be great and prosperous on this earth if they followed Jesus. Built on this idea that Christ would usher in this earthly reign was that the disciples were going to be his right-hand men as he ushers in this new kingdom. The promises God made to Abraham that that all the land before him would be given to him, that he was going to make a great nation, were going to be fulfilled through Christ. There would be peace, there would be food and wealth, and everything would be great. Could it be that we are just as prone to fall into the same type of thinking as the disciples? Could it be that we, especially in the American church, 
are just as prone to believe that we will receive material blessing on this earth for following Jesus. In larger circles, this is known as the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. I know for a fact that it is being proclaimed in churches as we meet right now in New Orleans. There are, there are n- many churches in New Orleans that are proclaiming this false belief in New Orleans currently. I don't believe that this church has any sort of slippage into this false teaching, but I want you to beware. And though I don't believe that this church is going to fall into this false belief, what we are prone to is an internal, implicit prosperity gospel where we are led to expect that as Christians we would enjoy health, wealth, trouble-free circumstances, immunity from relational hurts, betrayals, and failures, and from making mistakes and bad decisions. In short, a flowery bed of ease on which we would be carried happily to heaven. And these great expectations are in due time refuted by events. We lose our job, someone dies, or, or we're depressed, or someone lets us down. And, and somewhere deep within us, even if it's not like an outward thing, we say, why? Why, God? I, I've given up so much for you. I've made major changes in my life. Why would you allow this thing to happen? And what we're doing is we begin to hound ourselves that we're not good enough Christians, and we, and we begin to question whether we have Christ in us at all. And what we fall into is this prosperity legalism where we convince ourselves if we could just do more stuff for God, it'll work itself out. So that was the first understanding that, that, this, that they were going to be blessed with these material blessings on earth. And the second, that they, the second misunderstanding was that they believed that Christ was going to make a way through something outside of himself. This is what we read when we read Philip say, show us the Father and it is not enough for us. Thomas asks, how can we know the way? Clearly not understanding what Christ had just said a few days before when he said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. When we build our lives on things outside of Christ, while simultaneously paying him lip service, what we are saying is that there is a way to joy and happiness and contentment that does not include Christ. This often doesn't manifest itself into an explicit thought, but it is so present in our actions. We may be putting our hope in our spouses as your source of life, or maybe you're, you're putting your hope in your kids as your source of joy. I know as a college student, I often see people putting it in sports, investing large time and, and, and emotions in the sports, or partying or sex. But what we do, what do we do when these things fail us? Because they will. You know this. I don't have to convince you that these things that we're building our lives on, like relationships, like our kids, are going to let us down. If your life is built on hope in a relationship with your spouse, kids, or significant other, whenever they inevitably fail you, it will lead to bitterness, it will lead to depression, it will lead to ultimately despair, the same way it did for the disciples when they put their hope in something outside of Christ. So take a second, I really want us to take a second and ponder what it could be in our life that we are putting our hope in. Think about what you spend most of your time doing and thinking about. Are these things helping you to honor Christ or yourself? So second, the despair of the disciples. So they've built up all this, all this understanding, all of this belief of what Christ is going to do. And then Christ spends the next few chapters giving them more hope and more assurance that he's going to leave this earth, but that their sorrow will be turned to joy. And I can just imagine the disciples, they're listening to Jesus say all this, and they're like, Mm-hmm. Yeah, I got you, Jesus. Like, they're like, yeah, sure. You know, they're listening to him say things like, I'm going to leave this earth. I'm going to die. And they're just like, yeah, yeah, sure. Completely missing the point of what Christ was saying, blinded by their false hopes. Now imagine, imagine with this mistaken view of what Christ is going to do, 
seeing those hopes and dreams and thoughts completely crushed as he is dragged off and killed in the most brutal way possible. Everything they saw questionable, everything they felt lost, everything they thought they knew that he was the Messiah sent to save the world, killed. Can you imagine? And so where do we find the disciples the next time we hear from the disciples? So Jesus is taken before Pilate. He's taken before the people. They choose a known murderer over Christ. He's taken to the cross where the full wrath of God is poured out on him. And the next time we find the disciples, turn with me in your Bibles to John 20. John 20. It's just a few pages later. So their whole world has come crashing down. They're not resting in Christ's promises from the night before. They're not thinking about how Christ has said he has overcome the world. They're feeling utterly hopeless. The dream of prosperity, the dream of hope and life through that prosperity had crumbled before their eyes as they saw Christ crucified. I mean, how hopeless are they? Luke 24, 11, Some of the women have actually seen Christ come back to life. So he died and he's come back to life. And some of the women see him and they come and tell the disciples. And this is what we read. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe him. I mean, after seeing all that Christ could do, even raising other people from the dead, they're so dejected that they can't even believe that Christ could raise himself from the dead. You see that in the despair, they had lost sight of God. They allowed the present circumstances of the crumbling of their world to blind them to Christ, as they had been, the Christ that they had been walking with for three years. In their sadness and in their fear and in their despair, they turned inward. They lived out the words of Jesus from Matthew 7. In the Sermon on the Mount, when, Matt, when Jesus says, And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. A year ago, Austin and I were in Rome. Austin just got back from Italy. Uh, working with a similar church plant. It's, it's really similar to this church. It's sometimes it's, it's somewhat bizarre how similar it is to this church. Um, so he was over there, and he was working with them, and we were both over there. And so we're in Rome, and, and you know, just like boys do, we start wrestling. And we're on, we're on the bed, and we're wrestling. There's a couple other people in there, and everybody's laughing. And what we didn't realize is we thought this was a queen, and it turns out it was actually two twins that had been pushed together. And then one, one thing was thrown over them. So I, we're wrestling, and we just end up falling straight through the floor because the beds separate as we wrestle. And so, of course, we're laughing. Everybody's laughing. And I get up, and I'm like, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put the bed back together. And so I start throwing stuff back on the bed. And Austin, he's like, oh, I'll help. So he just yanks the sheet from the floor to, to pick it up and throw it back on the bed. But he didn't realize that I was standing on the sheet. So when he just rips the sheet out, my feet, my feet just fling into the air, and I fall directly onto my bed. Of course, the other guy is the associate pastor at the church that we work at, I mean, that we go to in Oxford. And he's just hysterically laughing. And see, the thing is, I had no hope of remaining standing. And this is exactly what Jesus is saying here with the weak foundation. He's saying that when the sands begin to shift beneath the house, when the foundation beneath our lives begin to shift and change in their weakness, we will inevitably crash to the ground. When our lives are built on the false hope of the things of this world, when they come crashing down, we will find ourselves questioning everything as we spiral into deeper and deeper depression through this cycle of despair. It's so easy to get caught in this, and no one is exempt from it. But we have our life and our hope questioned, and instead of turning towards Christ, we fall deeper into our despair, and we don't look to him. We look back to these things that we've built our foundations on, or we look to other things outside of Christ to, to build our foundation on. And somewhere within our minds and in our temptations, we convince ourselves that God clearly doesn't have what's best for us in his mind. 
if we, he only knew what was best for us, then he would have never allowed this thing to happen or happen or he would give us this thing. And in our questioning of God's goodness and his authority, we convince ourselves that we must take matters into our own hands. But the more we try and take control of our lives, the more we rebuild another house with a weak foundation and again it falls and we start the process over again. For the believer and the non-believer alike, we are prone to building our lives on these false hopes. However, what matters is what we do once these things have fallen and what God has done for us. So third and finally, the belief of the disciples in the midst of their despair, in the midst of their hopelessness and unbelief. Christ does not leave them to figure things out on their own. Instead, he does three things that he also does for us in these moments. And first, he comes to them. Three different times, to three different groups of disciples, he appears to them. So looking here at chapter 20, verse 19, we read, On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples, for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. Verse 26, skip down a little bit. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. You look just one page over, chapter 21. While the disciples are fishing, Christ comes to them, reveals himself to them, and beckons to them, Come have breakfast. It's one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible. There will be times in our life when we build our lives on false hopes and our false ways to happiness, and they will fail us, and we will find ourselves in deep disappointment. But Christ will never abandon us to this despair. Instead, he comes to us to rescue us out of the pit. This is why in Matthew 28, 20, just after the Great Commission, Jesus says, Behold, I am with you even to the end of the age. The word of God is full of story after story of God's people being brought low and God rescuing them up and bringing him back to himself. Brother and sister, rest in knowing that our God is a loving pursuer of the broken who has promised to give us rest because his yoke is easy and his burden is light. He came to Adam and Eve in the garden after they had fallen. He came to the world in the flesh as Jesus Christ. He's the shepherd in the parable who leaves the 99 sheep to pursue the one. He is the father in the parable of the prodigal son who runs to his, his son and embraces him. He is the Christ who is coming back to carry his people to glory and redeem the world. And he will come to you in your present situation. Second, so not only does he come to them, uh, but in his coming, he allows us to see him. He reveals himself to us. Remember how the disciples had lost sight of him and, and, and who he was in their despair? But there we see him reveal himself. Verse 20. So when he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then his disciples were glad, and they saw the Lord. Again, verse, 20, verse 27 with Thomas. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put your hands and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve but believe. And Thomas answered, My Lord and my God. Anytime these weak foundations in our life begin to shift and knock us on our butt, we may not be able to discern why all these things are happening, but we can know that God wants us in these moments to behold Him as the one true God, the one true foundation. The reaction of Thomas here is the cry of repentance from idolatry. He is recognizing Christ for who He truly is. He is truly seeing Him when He says, my Lord and my God. He doesn't just use any words to identify Jesus. He used the two highest words in, the, in his language for God. Thomas's idea of who Christ was supposed to be and what he was supposed to do were wrong. But what he acquires is a far more beautiful view of 
Christ when he sees him as he is meant to be seen, as the Lord of his life, as the God of everything. And he can now know there is nothing that can thwart the will of God. No plot of hell, no scheme of man. In our despair, it is easy to question whether God, whether whether God is good, if he would allow us to lose what we are so desperately clung to, but when he comes to us in our despair and we see him as he truly is, as our Lord and as our God, we are completely changed. No one beholds this God in his majesty and power and walks away the same. That is why as we as believers can look even to the greatest threat the world has to offer, death, and say, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ. And when we see the resurrected Savior as far more good than any possible idol we may erect, when we think along with the disciples, as John writes in chapter 21, verse 12, Now none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. So third and finally, when he comes to us in our despair, and we behold him as the Lord of our lives, he restructures our foundation. From this point forward, we see the disciples going forth unto the world, boldly proclaiming the gospel. I mean, look in Acts 4. After the same council that had facilitated Jesus' death, threatened Peter, John, and the rest of the Christians, the apostles reported these threats, and, and everyone felt the seriousness, but they don't respond in fear. No, instead, when tempted with discouragement, instead of being immobilized by fear, they respond in faith and ask God for help. And the result was, as we read, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Or Paul, who suffers many things for the Lord, even losing his life, he writes in Philippians 4, 11 through 13, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This is the life of hope and joy of seeing Christ as the risen Lord and God. When he comes to us and we see him for who he truly is, there is no question who he is. We know he is the Lord. So in conclusion, how do we do this? How do we have our foundation restructured from where our despair is turned into joy? How do we find this place where we can declare, I am content in all circumstances? How do we know in these moments? That he is the Lord. So first, through his word. This is what Christ says in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, um, so earlier we read how, how the life not built on the word, the foundation crumbles and great was the fall of it. But here, in the Sermon on the Mount, Christ says, everyone who then hears these words of mine, these words of mine, and does them, will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. The rock is the words of Christ. And so our foundation must be founded on the promises of Christ that we find in the Bible. John Piper, writing on the revelation of God in the scripture, says the whole Bible, properly understood, has this divine purpose and effect, to communicate or display the glory of God. And this pervasive aim of the scriptures to glorify God in what they teach and how they teach it reveals the handiwork of God in the writing of the Bible. If you want to experience the peace of God in your life, look to his written word. Second, through prayer. So, so just a second ago, I read from the end of Philippians 4. 
So, so Paul has just told us how he's going to be content in anything, how he can do everything through Christ Jesus who's, who strengthens him. And in verses 4 through 6 of Philippians 4, he tells us how. He says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ. The path to a peaceful heart and out of depression and despair comes through praying, entering the presence of God and making your requests known. Taking both of these two things, through listening to God and, and through His Word, see, speaking to God in prayer, we can avoid the dangers of self-pity and talking to ourselves so that in these moments when we are tempted to despair and we begin to hound our own minds with, you're not good enough, or, or you can't serve God, you're not good enough, or where will I find my hope? We will be in the presence of the Lord. And third, and finally, he restructures our foundation through the community of fellow believers. Galatians 6, 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, so fulfill the law of Christ. Or again, John 13, 35. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Brothers and sisters, if you think you can live this Christian life alone without the deep caring from your fellow believers, you are setting yourself up for failure. The local church, this church, is here to speak truth into your life, even if that's sometimes hard to hear in love. The commitment to this church body is a commitment to trust your soul's care to your fellow believers. And that may sound at first, and you may say you don't want to commit to this bearing of your soul to others. And I get that. I get that it can be hard to want to open up and to want to share your life with people. However, you cannot have authentic community without commitment. You will find superficial surface-level relationships where you offer nothing and they in turn offer nothing. But in biblical community commitment, you will find stronger Christians speaking truth into your life. And you will have newer Christians seeking that from you. And in this, your soul will be renewed through the bearing of your burden by others. And you will have others pointing you towards Christ as the only true foundation and watching your life to make sure that you remain in him. However, you cannot have this relationship or this transparency without commitment. If you want to see Christ as he is, look to the community of your church. As as Jamie Dunlop and Mark Dever write in their book, Compelling Community, the reasons we value unity often diverge from the reason God values unity. Yes, unity is pleasant. Yes, it makes for a happy church. Yes, it keeps meetings shorter. But ultimately, unity is valuable because it reflects God's character and being. God cares about our unity because it shows off his power and wisdom. The church is God's ambassadors to this earth. And so within the church, we are to see Christ. So if you want to experience Christ, look to his word. Go to him in prayer and commit to his church and you will experience him. The cross of Christ is horrifying. For on it, the perfect son of God became sin and the wrath of God was poured out on him. But the beauty of the cross is that those who are once far off can come to him and be forgiven. This life of despair and life of hopelessness does not have to be its end. No, instead, God uses this horrifying image of crucifixion to accomplish the ultimate good for all of humanity. We see it in the disciples' lives, and this God is still in the business of using the evil in this world to accomplish his good. 
And if we turn to him and see him as our Lord, then he will turn this despair into hope, and he will turn our depression into joy. Church, as we go through this series and week after week, look back at the cross of Christ, at the foot of the cross, I pray that your life, that you will find your life being restructured on this cross. Father God, I I come before you and I thank you for your word that speaks to us. Father, I, I, I pray that this word will be penetrating our hearts, God, and helping us to see and identify the places in our lives that we are not offering to you, God. There's places in our lives that we have erected idols or we have claimed um, that they are better than you, Father. And God, that we will allow them to fall and we will allow them to be crushed into dust, Father, and we will allow your cross to be erected in its place, Father, and that we will look to you as the only sufficient foundation for our lives, Father. I pray this in your name.